I'm going to start as ever with uh, well, just a couple of things that occurred to me uh, in the last day or two. One is um, this man. It's his birthday tomorrow. Sadly, he's no longer with us. But Frank Matic is, an, is a driver that in many ways characterized my love of motorsport as much as Jim Clark did. And I love that picture of Frank because there he is. I, I'm guessing that's 64 international 100 probably at Warwick Farm. He's about to do a parade lap in an open sports car, I think. You can see the total team logo there when the total racing team was the mega team of all time. Uh, and for those that haven't heard of Frank Maddich, he was an Australian driver, never raced outside Australia, apart from America when he did a bit of Can-Am and Formula 5000, never came to Europe. He did come to Europe to build his cars at the Brabham factory, but he never raced in Europe and had the respect of Jim Clark, Bruce McLaren. Anyone who raced against him in the Tasman series came back thinking, wow, this guy is seriously quick. And he would have been really good in Formula One had he made the, the plunge, but he didn't because he had a family and he had a business and everything else. But he's just a phenomenal racing driver and had that amazing battle with Jim Clark at Lakeside in 65 when they just chipped away at the lap record and it ended at 54.9 to uh, jointly, really. I mean, they were both doing that lap time, just incredible. Um, so, yeah, fond memories of Frank. It's his birthday tomorrow and sadly missed. And the other one, this just come in from Nigel Roebuck, who's a bit of a Jean Bera freak, as he would be, uh, as any of us should be, would be, could be. Jean Bera, an unbelievable tiger behind the wheel in the 50s, always there, pushing hard, a man's man, you know, stamp out the cigarette, get in the car, do the job. And here he is unbelievably doing an advertisement for Gillette. Nothing to say about that other than pff, I'm blown away that Jean Bera is seen to be doing that sort of thing. There he is shaving, bottom left. Incredible, eh? There you go. Welcome aboard again, as I say, to the live stream. We always have a lot of fun on these and I just sort of indulge myself with little moments like that. But then we get down to the really important things like your questions and comments. Much more important and I'm sure much more um, intelligent than anything I can say. So let's, with no more ado, let's get into that. And the first is from Aaron Lee, who's one of our regulars. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Peter. What are the main driving factors behind the recent new tracks being street tracks rather than the dedicated tracks? What needs to change to help dedicated tracks start to get a look in? And I wonder whether this is uh, asked on the back of the announcement on Tuesday that the Spanish Grand Prix from 2026 onwards will be in Madrid on a semi slightly permanent but mainly street circuit by the big exhibition center there near the airport. Incredible location for getting in and out. And yet another sort of, you can see it now, another sort of Miami, uh, Vegas shape racetrack, almost certainly. Lots of long straights, probably three DRS zones, the whole thing. Um, a lot of talk in the press, press conference about the capacity that this circuit will have, you know, 140,000 people, 150,000 people, which I'm always slightly bemused by, I have to say, because when Bernie famously once said the crowd at the racetrack the paying audience at the racetrack is just the studio tv audience it's not significant in the overall picture of things i kind of understood that um not sure that i liked the thought but i understood it that it wasn't a major part of the massive amounts of money that formula one has to generate in order to be what it is and so i'm slightly bemused by the i wouldn't say constant but there's a lot of energy behind 
the numbers of people that go to the races, 140,000, 150,000, 130,000. I mean, none of it is massive when you think about the 350,000 that used to go to the Nürburgring or indeed the crowds at the US Grand Prix when it was at Indianapolis, well over 200,000 every Grand Prix we did there. But there's a lot of emphasis on this stuff, you know, and you'd have to say, I mean, maybe they're saying, oh, there's a lot more people than we get into Barcelona. But again, how big a factor is that in the overall commercialization of Formula One? Yes, it, there's a certain amount of energy that comes from a large crowd and that, you know, capacity crowd, record crowd graphic always looks good on TV. But um, I'm just slightly bemused by it, that's all. Anyway, they're going to have 140, 150,000 spectators in there. I'm sure they'll get them. It's great for Madrid. Takes me back, of course, to Harama, the other Madrid Grand Prix venue, which I was lucky enough to attend several races at, actually. Good good racetrack, a bit Mickey Mouse, bit too many tight corners. Although by today's standards, it's fairly open and quick, really. Uh, some parts of it anyway. First, first went there in 72, watching Emerson win in the black and gold John Player Special, Lotus 72 which sort of was his first really dominant win in that car with that livery. And, and all of a sudden, that helmet, those Firestone tyres, the Lotus 72 in its development that year, uh, Martin Wade doing some great work on the car. It would just look like, well, this is going to be world champion straight away. Just everything looked right on that car. That was Harama 72. I remember the whole thing being quite dusty. We stayed at the Barajas Hotel, I think it was. Yeah, probably named after the airport and uh yeah i can remember hanging out in 70 about three or four years later hanging out with luca montezemla by the pool there quite dusty and hot and nice and quiet and just a really great grand prix really, used to really enjoy that spanish grand prix at Arama. i'm sure the grand prix at madrid's exhibition center will be completely different in atmosphere be all noise and lights and uh state of the art if that's what you want to call it state of something anyway um so good luck and got to congratulate liberty i guess on getting that that together it's quite a big operation and uh, i guess it raises the other question i'm going to get around to aaron i'm going to get around to your question in a minute it raises the other question of what will happen to barcelona the circuit there that's been the venue faithfully been the venue for many many years now and i guess you know the title of the spanish grand prix now will from 26 onwards will be with madrid which is great for Madrid, great for Spain in some ways, great for, I'm sure, generation of yet more money and everything else. But if the Spanish Grand Prix or if that race will, is now to continue in Barcelona, I guess it would only be as a Catalonian Grand Prix. There is that separatist, separatist um, issue in Spain and the circuit falls into, as far as I, th I think it does, it falls into the Catalonia area. Whether or not they've got the money necessary as a group the catalonians that is to continue to have that race at barcelona uh, with a different title uh, and fighting madrid i doubt very much but in a way i hope they do because i think barcelona had some really nice corners and it was nice that they'd taken that ridiculous chicane thing out that wiggle woggle thing before the last corner as well like in last year's race and we're going to see that of course through to 2026 and it's a good circuit. It's in good corners. I mean, I've always said coming out of turn two, which is the second part of the chicane, initial chicane, and then how they set up for turn three is a really nice bit of road. And you can really see how Max or Lewis or Charles, or um, interestingly, it'll be interesting to see how Oscar is there um, this time around, how they differ from other drivers who take you know a lot more road there. And, and you can see how Max is saving road, if nothing else 
with a very very short corner there and and beautiful to watch and, and it's one of the places that i always enjoy watching and it'll be sad when that goes from formula one anyway <laughs> getting on to your question aaron of course the reason liberty put on these races like this street let's call them street circuits is because having them in big cities in their mind makes a lot of sense commercially it brings it brings glamour to formula one it brings more people interested in formula one it brings in all the commerce and drama that comes from that international city particularly if the airport is very near the racetrack it's all to do with all to do with that stuff it's not to do with the the layout of the track at all of course and the, the track is a sort of, I guess, is like the second or third item on the list. Oh, yeah, well, we'll have to fit it in there. And, oh, there's a wall there. Okay, we'll fit it in over there and we'll knock this down. And, oh, there's a building there. We'll have to do a right-hander here. It's that sort of thing. And, of course, in terms of us purists who, who love great corners and love great racetracks, thinking of the S's at Suzuka or, or even that long, what was it, four apex corner in Turkey, you know, the, the, the opportunity to create corners like that when you're building a street circuit around a, an exhibition center, very, very few and far between. So that's why they do it. They do it for commercial reasons and they think the racing will survive okay because I'll just fill it with DRS zones and it'll be great for television. And anyway, all the onboard cameras and sound and everything else and the super slow-mos are getting better and better with every year so they can compensate with that improvement technically. And, and that's it. <laughs> you know, it's all money, money driven for sure. And I don't think anybody at the check signing level of Formula One hesitates before signing the check thinking, ah, but is there a great corner on this circuit? I just can't imagine they say that. It just even wouldn't even enter their peripheral vision, I think. So sad, but true, I'm afraid. Um, okay, thank you for that, much for that one, Aaron. So now this is, um, this is Marina Nora Rodriguez Ruiz, lovely name. Max has said many times he doesn't like street circuits. Why do you think that is? What does he feel differently between those tracks and the traditional ones? Well, has he actually said he doesn't like street circuits or has he said he doesn't like the modern version of street circuits? I think there's a difference. And as we, I don't, you know, he might well have been quoted out of context there or they might have clipped the, the quote. I can't imagine Max doesn't like going into Casino Square at Monaco or going to the swimming pool at Monaco or indeed doing what he did to get the pole through Rascas at Monaco. <clears throat> That's classic Max Verstappen. And I'm sure it would be almost impossible for Max to say, I don't like street circuits, if in his mind he was thinking of Monaco. But if he's thinking of the Vegases and the Miamis and all that, I kind of get it because it's walls and it's fences and it's, you know, one... It's not one 90 degree corner after another, but there's a bit of that. And it's, you know, he's a racing driver and he loves his thrill. Can we use the word thrill still? Or is it doesn't do enough to justify, to, to describe what Max feels when he's absolutely on the limit on a great corner? Probably thrill is probably not the right word to describe that. But whatever it is, he doesn't get it breaking and turning into a 90 degree left or a 90 degree right. He gets it on corners like, as I say, going into Casino Square at Monaco or indeed up the S's at, at Suzuka or Pouin or Eau Rouge or a lot of Cops Corner, Beckett's at Silverstone. So that's what he's saying. And I and I and I totally get it because it's, you know, those those circuits. If you consider, and we had this subject last week, didn't we, about how high the standard of driving was in Formula One now. And I said, look, everybody's a late breaker these days, and everybody can basically get on the power quite early and hold a slide. 
Um, and the standard of driving, therefore, given all the telemetry and all the information you have before you even get in the car, is pretty high if you've got good balance, eyesight, rhythm, and all the other things you need. And, and so, you know, where's the challenge in that? I'm not saying Max doesn't do that better than everybody else, or Max and Lewis and a couple of others, but it's not really how he wants to display his skill. He wants to display his skill on a long corner, on a decreasing radius, or he wants to do it on a corner where you, you're braking with load on the car, lateral load on the car, and you've got to slow it down just the right amount, and everybody's got understeer, and he's the guy that manages to have less understeer. That's what he wants. He just doesn't want bland corners that are the inevitable result of putting in street circuits in confined spaces that are there for commercial reasons. So I think that's what he means. Um, I'm, I don't want to obviously say things out of you know bounds that he doesn't not really knowing what he thinks but i would suspect that is what he meant when he said i don't like street circuits what he means is he doesn't like the modern type of street circuit which is good to hear and i'm glad he said that if he, if he did say that one more i really like oscar says marina do you think he's going to be in trouble for lando next year i know lando's very good but if oscar can improve his time management he could be a serious threat okay well oscar improve your time management it's a bit odd, isn't it, how he did actually have the tyres go off. Where was it? Mexico, I think. He's, he used the tyres up much quicker than Lando. And maybe, was it Austin too? He did the same thing? I can't quite remember. But he did, yeah, it's a good point. But I, you know, I've said several times, I think Oscar is, is the business. And he, purely because he does have this feel, he has a touch and a feel, which right up there with Lando's in my opinion and but in addition to that he has a feel for short corners and doing that pretty well he I th he's very self-critical and he probably he would say oh yeah I've got a long way to go or whatever but um, to my mind when he's on it and the car is pretty well balanced and he's got a good set of tires I I think he's right there with Lando there's been a lot of talk about Lando over the winter um, justifiably so he's he's very very good but his corners are longer than Oscar's. And, and, and I think that is when you've seen Oscar going quicker than Lando and putting pressure on Lando and Lando making the odd mistake, it's usually because Oscar's done a time using shorter corners and Lando's sort of stretching his own limits of areas where he normally doesn't have to stretch them and he's going over them because what else can he do? He doesn't have the, the same manipulation of the car into the corner as, as Oscar has, in my opinion. And so... If I were you, I wouldn't worry too much about Oscar. Yes, tire management, but you know, dealing with getting to know how to run Pirellis is not an easy thing. I mean, they just basically designed to fall off the cliff. And some drivers who've been working with Pirellis for quite a long time have the ability to extend that moment and to enlarge that moment. But you've got to you've got to be used the Pirellis for quite a long time to really get a feel for how to best limit the damage when they do go off the cliff because that's what they do and it's not great for a racing driver either to have to deal with that as one of his issues you know it'd be much nicer to be talking about uh acceleration runs braking runs turn in point all that stuff but and a lot of it is as you say is just tire management how do we get these tires to last longer and it's pretty boring really but you've got to do it and it's it's a it's a function of racing in 2024 you know the pirellis are not designed to do a full grand prix distance by any means and in fact they're going the other way on a pretty regular basis
And they do that. They're doing quite, it's interesting, they're doing quite a lot of it in Formula 3 and Formula 2 now. And, and Pirelli are quite pleased with the fact that they're creating models and tyre um, simulations, if you like, where the same thing is happening there. And it's good training for when the tyres completely collapse in Formula 1, you can completely collapse in Formula 3. And a friend of mine was talking to Juan Pablo Montoya the other day, whose son races in Formula 3. And Juan Pablo said, look, first 10 laps of Formula 3 race, forget about racing, just drive around, just cruise around, and then hopefully a few other people have abused their tyres and then you can start racing on a half reasonable set of tyres. I mean, that's not really motor racing, isn't it? Certainly not for young kids. And um, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame that um, it's gone that way. So this is from Abhishek Rajivan. Peter, can you tell me about Rory Byrne and his design style? How does he stack up against Adrian Newey? And hey, do you think these two could ever team up and create something awesome together? Yeah, I mean, Rory... Is a, I mean, the Rory, I, I'm Rory lives in Thailand now, so I don't see much of him. But the Rory I knew and know is, he always got the impression that he was a little bit chaotic. He, he, you know, he's a South African, so he spoke like this. And you'd say, you know, in the days of the Tolman Hart, when they were struggling and the Hart engine was not particularly reliable, Hart turbo engine was not particularly reliable, and the car was built on a tiny shoestring. I'd, you'd go up to Rory and you'd say, um, so Rory, you know, how's it going? Have you managed to get any weight off the car yet? And he said, oh, well, you know, we're trying very hard to do that. But you, Peter, I've got to tell you, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. It's, you know, we, we, we get rid of this and we have to put on that. And then we get rid of that and we have to put on this. And he, would talk and he, and he seemed... When you spoke to him, it was difficult to imagine that he was he was this great engineer, which he obviously is and was back then. He, he was very simple and very um, slightly chaotic, as I say, in, 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 in the way he was. And but he produced some great cars. You know, he produced the, the F2 car. And then um, obviously when he was with Michael at Benetton, that's when, you know, maybe it was under the, the heading of Ross Braun um, that he got a discipline that took him to another level and and ever since he's been with I think it's ever since they went to Ferrari I think he's been with Ferrari ever since isn't he he's, I think he's still on a Ferrari contract and he I think his talent is sheer practicality and knowing what is feasible and what isn't and I'm sure he would have had an input at Ferrari at the beginning of 2022 about bouncing because Ferrari actually didn't have as much bouncing in the car as Mercedes and say McLaren and credit to that to Rory Byrne for sure um, Rory and Adrian I, you know, Rory is an aerodynamicist and Adrian's an aerodynamicist so whether two negatives equal a positive I don't know or two positives equal a negative I don't know um, Adrian can also completely design a car as can Rory so yes, they'd probably be pretty good together. I imagine Rory would be the sort of blunt edge of everything that Adrian wants to do and would say, well, you know, we haven't got the time to do that, Adrian. We've got the money here and we've got the date with it there. Let's just get on with it. Adrian's got people around him or, or currently who obviously say that to him as well. So he doesn't need Rory to do that. But I don't know. I think the best, the most we could ever imagine or hope for would be to sit down with those two over dinner and just have them chat together and listen to what the, how the conversation went and what they would talk about and what sort of things they find interesting. But yeah, Rory, top man and incredibly uh, wise of Ferrari to have 
worked with Rory for so long and had him there. He's a really, really good guy. And a classic Formula One racer, you know, works hard, works like a dog and never gives up and um, does things very quickly. I think that's the other thing about Rory, very quickly. Very good, very good in that area, speed-wise. So, yeah, good question. Thank you. Cosmos Trek. Now, Cosmos Trek very kindly um, also put up a couple of questions saying he had a very good podcast. He'd found a good podcast um, to do with Gilles de Ferran and encouraging people to look for that. So go out there on the cyberspace and Google podcast Gilles de Ferran. I'm sure you'll find it. In the meantime, here is a... Here's another question, basically saying the same thing. This is all post yet another street circuit coming onto the Formula One calendar. Peter, street circuits are a waste of money. They end up spending the same amount if they build a great permanent circuit. They could make money from multiple days a year. And, and that was always Bernie Eccleston's philosophy. That's why Bernie didn't do a lot of street circuits. As, as tempting as it was to want to be in the absolute hub of economy and, and money and people and energy, he stayed away from it and he built these permanent circuits in the middle of nowhere getting local governments to pay for them and that was his way of doing it you know he his his philosophy was once it's on tv it doesn't really matter where it is it's like you know you're watching a western with beautiful pictures of colorado mountains in the background the whole thing says filmed and produced at pinewood studios england you know bernie's philosophy was exactly the same you know it doesn't matter where it is it's the only thing that matters is that at the tv angles and the cars and the racing and the great corners I say great corners because I'm not sure it wasn't that high on it wasn't that high on Bernie's thing. But having said that, you know at least he was a racer and he he did like fast corners I think and decent corners, and and he always made the point Bernie that street circuit exactly as you're making the point Cosmos he actually made the point that street circuits cost end up costing more probably than permanent circuits because having to having to rebuild them every year is a drama, and then on top of that you've got all the local negativity that comes and you have to overcome that every year and you have to start to pay to get through that barrier as well and they end up being very expensive races to run i mean melbourne have got a pretty nice compromise there haven't they they've got the albert park which doesn't really disrupt the traffic that much it disrupts it but not that much but um you know singapore yeah, it's, it, it, Singapore's a different country and everybody basically does what they're told. But Madrid, because it's out near the exhibition centre, it won't be too bad. Again, it'll be away from, there's a big motorway that runs right next to the exhibition centre. So that won't be affected, I don't think. It'll all be around there. So there won't be that much disruption. But as you say, the cost of doing that circuit and then rebuilding it every year, <clears throat> probably, as I say, if they built a permanent circuit somewhere, in Toledo or somewhere like that, um, it would be probably cheaper in the long run and have all the facilities you need. And that's another thing about street circuits, of course, the facilities are always slightly compromised as well. So yeah, you know, and using the circuits, I mean, using the circuits, I wouldn't, I'd be, I can't imagine that Bahrain or Abu Dhabi have got their money back yet in terms of that, where that, what that area was in the case of both circuits and what it is now, the cost of getting it from, a to there to B, will ne they'll never get it back. But they're doing a pretty good job of making the circuits work during the year, whether it's drag racing, rock concerts, whatever it is, leasing it out to manufacturers for track days and things. Um, they do a pretty good job with that. Of course, you can never do that, as you say, with a street circuit. So another reason. I'd be interested to see if Liberty do go in the, in the way of doing one permanent circuit now. It'd be interesting to see if they 
don't if they ever do a, a, a new permanent circuit in their ownership of Formula One. Okay, Karma in Babylon. This is your serious question, I think. I've read much about the Monduic Park circuit and now the infamous 75 race weekend. Seems opinions varied wildly about this circuit. Your memories and thoughts on yet another street circuit. Well, I think we've kind of covered the whole business of yet another street circuit. And I'm with you guys. I would love to see... I'd love to see old street circuit, old style street circuits like Monjuic Park. We're never going to see those again. Too quick, too dangerous. But if not, I'd rather see permanent circuits, an investment in permanent circuits. As I said, to me, instead of building that track in Vegas, they should have built a rendition of the Nürburgring out in the desert there, not far from Vegas. 15 mile lap, jumps, everything, safety runoff areas, all the things you need to make it a 2024 spec Grand Prix track. Wouldn't that have been brilliant? That would have been Liberty's legacy, you know, building this Nürburgring. And that could have just, that would have been used every day of the year, absolutely, without a doubt. And, and you've got the space to do it there. You've got the money there for sure to do that. And you could have had a huge rendition of the sport hotel. And you could have built the castle on the mountain, or build a mountain with a castle on the top. Why didn't they do that? You know, let's go back to the Nürburgring. The proper Nürburgring, not that, you know, South Circuit thing. Not even the South Circuit. The South Circuit was great. Not that new one that they've got. 75, well, Monjuic Park. Yeah, I, first race I went there was 73. Pretty spooky place in terms of the guardrail and the height of the guardrail and how quick it was. Uh, I mean, after the start, it went over a brow where the cars got a little bit airborne, then very fast downhill section to a hairpin left. And then it went through some quite tight, fast, tight, medium speed corners to the bottom of the hill. And then you began the climb up the hill and they were all fast sweepers, long, very quick left hander leading back onto the straight again. Very quick second half of the lap, you know, really seriously quick corners, 120 mile an hour stuff. And um, and it was a great circuit. I mean, the, the drivers all loved it that I ever spoke to. Incredibly demanding. I mean, Chris Amon was incredibly good around there particularly in the Matra. Woof. Um, Carlos was really good around there as well. But yeah, I was there in 73 and I was there in 75 when that accident happened. And um, I was down at the hairpin on the outside of the hairpin doing my lap chart as you do. And I just saw, I just saw dust and uh, debris. Something hit the guardrail and it was pretty obviously a massive shunt and went up there and after the race actually. And um, yeah, very sad sight. Now, the problem was, and it was not only Barcelona, but it was other circuits as well. The problem was the way the Armco barriers had been mounted and secured, the uprights in the ground and the way the Armco was bolted onto the uprights. And, and, and for Armco to work well, as you obviously know, it has to be very firm. And the whole idea of Armco is you hit it and you basically bounce off it. But if there's any give in it, or the, or the Armco splits, as it did in the case of Francois Sever and Marcus Hottinger at Watkins Glen, for example, then it's a terrible situation. And that's that was what the drama in 73 was all about with with Jackie Stewart not wanting to race um, because of the Armco and going around, literally going around and starting to bolt the, the guardrail together. And it's what it was in 75 when Emerson Fittipaldi um, said this circuit is not safe enough and he, I, he did one lap didn't he, as the world champion and then stopped and a lot of people were critical of Emerson and he, he had a vision as did Jackie Stewart of, how, of what the safety level should be so that's another thing you know when it's a street circuit 
all that stuff has to be rebuilt every year. And so there's obviously very high standards now of, of, of licensing for any circuit and there's a tremendous number of inspections. So that sort of thing wouldn't happen today. But back then it did happen. And yeah, Barcelona was, it was just quick. But my memory is of a great race. You know, you're in the middle of Barcelona. It was a lovely place, Bonjuric Park, a lovely mountain in the middle of, the, of Barcelona city. And it was, there was a great paddock area there where all the teams were kind of crammed together and you could just walk from one team to another. And there was a great atmosphere. Yeah, everybody, as I say, everybody got into it. And, and it was a classic, you know, Spanish Grand Prix. That was one of the races where, one of the few races where Jim Clark actually, actually lost his cools. The 68 Formula 2 race there, he, he was taken out by Jackie X at that first hairpin, T-bone by X. You just basically break too late or nerf Jimmy off. And Jimmy was absolutely livid about it and was, um, you know, very, very angry with Jackie X. And I think, you know, they were okay after the race when they chatted. But at the time, Jimmy was very upset. MBM. Hi, Peter. Can you give us an insight on Nelson Piquet's driving style? I know the guy was a genius when it comes to develop or setting up a car. But there's little information on his driving style. Soft touch. Lando Norris-esque. But long corners. Absolutely long corners. Sort of not to the extent of Carlos Sainz, but definitely longer than even Lando Norris's, I'd say. So turned in quite late, long corners, Jensen Button-esque, really, and, uh, and very clever. When you say setting up a car, mm, I wouldn't agree with that. I think he was pretty good at getting the car well balanced for the way he wanted to drive it. But whether he actually had a car that was then as quick as a racing car physically could be driven, I doubt very much. And I think Nigel was quicker and could get more out of the car. So that immediately... There was a difference in setup there. And I think Nelson was more about clever tricks and ideas than he was about being a genius on setup. And I think that was a, that was a native cunning that he had. Uh, Greg Siddle, Pee Wee, his mate, was very good at um, expanding that, as were Bernie and Gordon Murray. And they worked together really well. But I don't think it worked very well for him at Williams or Benetton or Lotus, for that matter. And there was less you could do then in those subsequent days anyway. But yes, it was more, you know, Formula 3 days, he'd have a lot of tricks up his sleeve for sure. And he took that through, right through into certainly all the Brabham years. And there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, we know the cars were underweight a lot in qualifying. And, you know, Nelson was very good at that. He always had underweight helmet, underweight overalls, um, probably didn't have anything in the fire extinguisher. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with Nelson and quite difficult to keep up with it sometimes. And he did have quite long corners. So, you know, car for car, circuit for circuit, Setup for setup, Nigel was quicker for sure, but uh, Nelson had a lot of very very good qualities as well, and there's no doubt a charming guy. You know, sit down, have dinner with him, have a laugh. He was a very funny bloke, and um, Frank just loved him. Frank felt much more at ease. Frank Williams, this is with Nelson than he ever did with Nigel, and um, so that was one of the reasons the whole thing was such a mess. Because when Nelson started to say to Frank, "What's going on? Why is this English guy going so quickly? You must be giving him special engines." Frank was kind of very unsure of how to handle the situation because the answer was, in reality, Nigel was going quicker. And so, but it was a difficult thing for him to say to Nelson. Duncan Cunningham, I'm, this is a nice question. Um, can you talk about Sheridan Thin a little bit more when you were at Williams? Yeah, it was just a. Just a lovely, we had, I was very close to Sheridan. We were, um, we got on incredibly well. We both 
ran when I, when I knew you know when Sheridan was there we both ran worked in the commercial side on the sponsorship side but we were very close to Frank in our different ways Sheridan because he'd, he'd got to know Frank in the early 60s when Frank was ducking and diving and buying and selling Conrods and Pistons and and going racing Formula 3 racing and then running cars for drivers like Piers Courage and Roy Pike and Sheridan did actually live in that famous flat in uh, in West London with at some point Frank Williams, Jochen Rint, you know, you name it, they're all there. And, and Sheridan himself raced a mini. So he was he was part of the Christabel Carlisle, John Rhodes mega mini thing. And that was good. And he, he knew Frank and they got on well because Sheridan went to Eton and Frank loved that. And Piers Courage went to Eton, so they got on very well. And Sheridan was just a very funny person who spoke he's incredibly articulate very intelligent very worldly wise could could break into latin whenever he needed to and um but i introduced him to you know other things sting and nigel mansell and all my stuff and um and he loved all that as well and he embraced it all and that's why we got on so well i think and 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 i don't know how many of you have seen yes minister as it became, yes, Prime Minister. But Sheridan was effectively Sir Humphrey, the civil servant, and Frank Williams was effectively Hacker. And and we often used to have Sheridan and I meetings on how to handle Frank and how to break some bit of news to Frank or how we'd get something out of Frank that we needed. And I suppose I was the, uh, you know, I've forgotten his name, Bernard, was it? And so we were a great team. I don't think Frank ever really got that, but we worked really closely together. And in odd weekends, he would go off to Shelsley Walsh or Prescott hill climbs because his son Piers would be hill climbing and Sheridan would be driving the car and helping Piers with the with the hill climbing and Piers would be doing this and that. And now Piers is very high up at McLaren. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Per, per, Sheridan would be so proud of that. And so he'd be so respectful of Piers's position as well. And he's called Piers after Piers Courage, no question about that. And uh, he was good friends with, I think he was very good friends with Christian Horner too. When Christian was racing in Formula 3000, Sheridan was close to him. And so he and Christian would be good friends today for sure. So long and short, I really miss Sheridan. Lovely guy, passed away suddenly whilst he was, he was on holiday, I think in Egypt, Cairo, somewhere like that. Very sad. He's also, Jonathan Williams was another, the racing driver Jonathan Williams, another very good friend of Sherry's and they used to chat a lot and we used to have lots of Jonathan Williams stories as well. Yeah, I don't think I ever laughed as much as I did in those days with Sherry at Williams, particularly when we were going, you know, going for Frank and getting Frank to do things he didn't want to do. We definitely had a good double act going. Hi Peter, Carl Dieter's Fields Hill Nemesis from South Africa. Could you share any of your acquired knowledge of the halcyon and suicidal days and drivers of auto unions on skinny tires wearing leather aviator helmets? Um, when you say wearing leather aviator helmets, I think they wore white, generally they were white cotton helmets. I don't think they wore leather, but anyway, splitting hairs. And there was an occasion, I think it was Louis Chiron in his Bugatti, something happened and he lost his goggles and his cotton helmet had to drive with neither uh, <laughs> yeah auto union interesting to think that Ferdinand Porsche 
was involved in the technology at both Mercedes and Auto Union. Think about that. And of course, the Auto Union, mid-engine Auto Union, was very much a Ferdinand Porsche idea and concept, which they adopted. And this was all born of the 1933 Hitler push to have German teams winning Grand Prix racing, beating the Italians and the British. And so a lot of money was put into both Mercedes and Auto Union. That's how we had all that technology. And, you know, the, if you think of the drivers of that time, you think of, I think of Tatiana Nubilari, unbelievable heroism, bravery, strength, but also for sure a feel for the surface of the road and suppleness. Uh, but, you know, you think about him, it was in 30, uh, 33, he broke his leg in, uh, in Italy. And five weeks later, he was, he was driving a Maserati. And five weeks later, he was at Arvus, the German circuit with a banking, with his left leg in plaster getting his mechanics to adapt the position of the pedals so that he could race with his leg in plaster and he finished fifth. <laughs> That's what they did in those days. And yeah, you know, that the, the Auto Union was pretty sketchy in terms of its balance. It was very, very knife edgy, very low polar moment of inertia, uh, mid-engined and Nubilari at a circuit like, or Bernd Rosemeyer as well, uh, a circuit like Donington or the Nürburgring, just flicking from side to side everywhere. And you had to be a brilliant driver to get the best from the auto union but if you did it was a very good car quick car i mean 195 i think they were doing approximately that sort of speed mercedes was definitely a better handling car rudy caracciola again um a hero massive shunt at monaco in a privately entered i think again it was a maserati i think the brakes fell going into the back and um, I think it was 33 again and um, broke his leg badly to the point where after the operation his right his right leg was two inches shorter than his left and that's how he then drove this great career of his um, with that impediment not that it was that difficult Bruce McLaren had a similar thing but it just shows his commitment to racing he lost his wife in a skiing accident his first wife and kept going and just won all those races with the Mercedes. I think in the final analysis, uh, in terms of Grand, Grand Depreur, if you take out the Tiger Florio and races in America and various other things, I think Nuvolari is just ahead of Caracciola and both of them pretty comfortably ahead of, I would suspect it would have been Louis Chiron, probably Rosemeyer, very near Chiron. And yeah, just all amazing drivers who had to put up not only with um, incredible danger in terms of the circuits were full of telegraph poles and trees but also incredible handicaps in the car you know heat and fuel leaks and things I mean Felice Nazaro was actually actually adapted his own seat when he was racing for Fiat, because it was too, it was injuring him. The seat was injuring him. So he actually had this sort of softer seat made just to be able to survive the Grand Prix distance. And don't forget, there were very long races as well in those days. So you go on. I think those guys were all heroes. And I have, a, you know, I love that period, the 30s. I love the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s as well. But the 30s to me, there's this romance about it. And when you think about Dick Seaman 
a bit like Lewis Hamilton, you know, joining Mercedes, the young British superstar joining Mercedes, getting that opportunity, winning the German Grand Prix in 1938, uh, and then being undecided what to do about a Heil Hitler salute on the podium and did a sort of half-hearted wave, um, which was a brave thing to do. And he'd been, you know, he thought long and hard about what he would do if he did win a race for them. And it happened to be in Germany with all of the, the Nazis there. And I said, imagine what that was like for Dick Seaman. But he did it and he kept his drive and he was getting better all the time. And now it was 1939 and he was um, in racing in the wet at the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. I think he was lying second, but he was pushing hard and he lost the Merck. Uh, where the bus stop chicane is now, but was then just a fast left-hand kink, went off, didn't lose it, just ran a bit wide and, and the car hit a tree and then caught fire. And they took him to hospital nearby and he was not badly injured in terms of bones breaking and he was conscious and he was talking. And, uh, and one of the last things he said was, Please tell my wife I won't be able to take her to the cinema next week. And he passed away. You know, and then war broke out. It was, you know, what a time. What a time. And there was a time in between 1924 and 1925 when 10 leading drivers lost their lives. And there was a race at Monza in 1933, the Milan Grand Prix, not the Italian Grand Prix, the Milan Grand Prix, a very, very similar race in terms of the people competing in the cars. Three drivers killed in one race, in one afternoon. That's why, you know, whenever the subject of safety comes up, I always say uh, motor racing can be as safe as it can possibly be. I'm a massive advocate for safety and always have been because... Uh, we have that historical perspective to think of. And I, I personally lived through a period of incredible danger in Formula One as well. And I never want to have to do that again. I've had enough of it. So, yeah, all amazing heroes. Incredible to think that both Nuvolari and Caracciola lived well past their racing careers and died, if you like, natural deaths. Um, Herman Lang, too. Man from Ron Braukic too. I mean, they a lot of them did survive. Sadly, not Bernd Rosemeyer, who lost his life on a speed record attempt on the German Autobahn for Auto Union. And there were many others, you know, that we lost much too soon. Anyway, there we are. I'm going to finish again with that little Madrid music, just to remind you how I think nicely they're doing the music side of Formula One these days. And then we'll go to the ending. So a big thank you to everybody again for taking part in your questions. Looking forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks to Jetcraft. Thanks to Pitbox for their support of this. Stay safe and see you soon.